This is episode 16 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 16 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Richard M. Durflinger, a public policy fellow at the CEC. A tireless leader in the pro-life movement for over 30 years, Durflinger's efforts were integral to the conception, passage, and continued vitality of many pro-life laws. He also worked on partial birth abortion bans, Born Alive Infant Protection Laws, Conscience Protections, the Weldon Amendment, and abortion funding restrictions both domestic and international, such as the Hyde Amendment and the Mexico City Policy. Now retired from his work with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Durflinger continues to unapologetically and effectively communicate the moral basis of life issues. Let's head into the Marion Short Ethics Library for this week's conversation. I'm here today with Richard Durflinger. Richard M. Durflinger retired in 2016 after 36 years of service to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, finishing as the Associate Director of the Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities. In that role, he was involved in every single life issue, including embryo research, abortion, physician-assisted suicide, and euthanasia at the very highest level in federal and state governments. In 2011, he became the first recipient of the Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal, and he continues to serve as a public policy fellow of the Center for Ethics and Culture and writes opinion columns in Catholic newspapers across the nation, among other things, in his busy retirement. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Richard, um, what was your daily life like at the uh, USCCB? What did, what did you do? Well, when I first came to the USCCB, straight out of a uh, graduate program in theology, I thought, well, this is wonderful. I can do applied theology, taking what I know about moral teaching of the church and apply it to these public policy issues. What I found was it was a lot like doing moral theology in a crowded train station where you're, you're already lost, you don't know where your train is, and nobody speaks the same language. Uh, so it's, it's been really, uh, really a transition for me. It's uh, obviously working in Washington on Congress and different administrations. You are applying these moral principles to the bishop's priorities for uh, legislation, uh, both uh, bills to oppose and bills to support, and trying to build relationships with people of both parties because we don't take positions on partisan politics. Uh, so I, my daily life, I would, uh, I would be following what's happening with different bills in Congress. Uh, we had a, a separate government relations or lobbying department, but I had to give them policy direction okay. on the positions to take and how to argue them. I would be drafting letters and testimony for the bishops' conference. Sometimes I would get to go actually go up to Capitol Hill and present the testimony and be subjected to uh, questioning by people who did not like what we were saying. Yeah. And that was uh, that could be very interesting. And uh, 
also uh, assisting in the, the production of uh, press releases and educational materials on the life issues for the bishops, and working with our legal office to write uh, uh, amicus briefs to the Supreme Court on the pro-life issues as well. What would you say the highlights or the landmarks of your of your work? Uh, some of them, some of the things I worked on that I got very involved in, uh, both of the efforts for universal health care reform in the Clinton administration and then the Obama administration, uh, there's a, an article in Mother Jones magazine that f- focuses on me as the man who almost killed health care reform. I like to think that I almost fixed it uh, <laughs> on the pro-life issues. Yeah. Uh, that's all about the Stupac Amendment. The Stupac Amendment and other, other efforts to make sure that the uh, health care reform would not force people to fund abortion and would not violate uh, conscience rights, and also that uh, it would really provide universal health care and not exclude immigrants uh, as part of our comprehensive vision of human dignity that includes the vulnerable before and after birth. And on none of those did we really get what we had been hoping for. Uh, There was a brief moment that I was very involved in when we actually got the House of Representatives to pass a health care reform bill with the Stupac Amendment in it that would have addressed a number of those issues. Uh, But then the Senate rejected that, and it's the Senate that uh, prevailed. Uh, We were involved in the effort to pass a ban on partial birth abortion, which is the first time the federal government had ever banned uh, an abortion method. Uh, We were involved in defending and uh, and continuing the Hyde Amendment to prevent public funding of abortion. Uh, I was very involved in the debate on embryo research and embryonic stem cell research. And the reason for that was that Initially, back in 1994, the, uh, uh, the Clinton administration started holding hearings of a new advisory panel on what kinds of human embryo experiments might be uh, eligible for federal funding. And I was one of the very few people in the pro-life movement who took notice of this and started going to those hearings. And what I ended up doing is writing a whole series of articles in National Rights of Life News about it that uh, alerted a lot of other pro-life people to what was going on. And I found a lot of it appalling, but I also ended up getting a lot of uh, background in the science of this and what some of the ethical claims were that it stood me in good stead when we faced then the debates about embryonic stem cell research and cloning down the road. Well, now I'm going to imagine that, so you retired in 2016, but of course, these continue to be issues, and a fellow doesn't just turn that off. You're like, well, that's somebody else's problem. So, so how's how's retirement different, or or is it? Uh, retirement is different because I'm living three thousand miles away from the Washington D.C., which is lovely, and also because I can set my own hours. Uh, but I'm still dealing with some of the same things, and some things that, to some extent, were around before, but are becoming, I think, of ever greater importance. Uh, the whole issue of conscience rights has come to the fore in health care. Uh, the Trump administration just issued some helpful regulations on improving the enforcement of federal laws to protect the conscience rights of doctors and nurses and hospitals that object to abortion. This has become a growing need because of the turn of the pro-abortion movement from emphasizing freedom of choice into emphasizing access Every woman, they claim now, must have ready access to abortion, whether she wants it or not. And uh, in some states now, you have initiatives 
in place and being proposed elsewhere to require every health plan in the state to include abortion coverage for every man, woman, and child. And even if the, none of those people want this. And it extends so, also then to health care providers being forced to provide this coverage directly it, in some cases too. Uh, it, ex- it can extend to health care providers being forced to perform them, uh, assist in them. It can even apply to uh, churches and religious organizations that provide insurance for their own employees. They would have mm-hmm. to subsidize this. And so the need to emphasize the principle of religious freedom, the principle of conscientious objection, has become enormously important. Uh, another issue that is growing in its significance and uh, is very alarming is the movement toward physician-assisted suicide. Oregon passed its law legalizing that back in 1994. Uh, It took effect in 1997. For 11 years, no other state followed suit. Then Washington state legalized it in 2008. And now we have uh, five states in the District of Columbia that have laws like this allowing doctors to prescribe a lethal overdose of pills for uh, patients who they diagnose as being uh, terminally ill. It was recently revealed that uh, in Oregon, the way the Department of Health interprets terminally ill is that you are terminal if you refuse treatment and that makes you terminal. In other words, you you could have treatment that could cure you or indefinitely sustain your life, but if you refuse that treatment, or if your insurance company refuses it to you, or a doctor refuses to provide it, well, now you're terminal because the treatment's not being provided. And that that means the scope of people who are subjected to being encouraged to take their own lives is much broader than originally thought. Yeah. Uh, also, so, kind of, in a way, moves to... Uh, being coerced uh, for some people who don't want to necessarily be a burden and they say, well, this is the out that's being given to me and the only out that's being given? Well, yeah, half the people who are signing up for these lethal prescriptions say the reason they're doing it is uh, they, they feel they've become a burden. And I think that's a message that legalizing it uh, sends all by itself because the society of able-bodied people has decided that they're going to prevent everybody else's suicide but assist your suicide because uh, your life is not as worth protecting against your suicidal impulses as other people's lives are. Uh, It's really an an exercise in discrimination and bigotry against people with serious illnesses. Uh, So – It's not about autonomy. In fact, the doctor, the witnesses, the people who you get left alone with at the end with that bottle of uh, pills all have more power in the situation than the patient himself or herself does. And the – while lots of studies have shown that people who have serious illness uh, don't want suicide unless they have clinical depression, just as other people who have suicidal thoughts do – Despite all those studies, uh, 96% of the patients in Oregon get no evaluation for depression or other psychological problems. So, yes, these people are in need of counseling. They're in need of help and support and for other people to assure them their lives are worth living and instead they get a bottle of pills. Uh, A final problem that's just emerging now with new advances in genetic technology uh, is – 
our growing ability to alter the human genome. You know, we've had a kind of eugenics mentality in some of the medical profession already where prenatal screening is done to identify children, for example, with Down syndrome and then abort them. Mm -hmm. Then we had pre-implantation genetic diagnosis where embryos in the laboratory can be tested and then the ones that have some genetic problem can be thrown away. Now we have the growing ability to take those embryos and alter their genome to prevent or cure disease, but also to tailor any particular traits that someone might want. Uh, and those, those uh, germline changes to the genome last into all future generations. We have the prospect now of dividing society into the genetic haves and have-nots, those mm. who have been enhanced or perfected in someone's mind in one way and another, physically, mentally, psychologically, and those who have not. You know, raising the prospect of uh, the kind of two-class society that was uh, featured in the movie Gattaca, yeah. where uh, people who have not been genetically engineered are called the invalids or the invalids. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just the... Uh, in other words, they were reproduced in the uh, natural way, and so there was no opportunity to perfect them. And the certainly brave new this, world, you know, this whole idea too, right? Brave new world, the idea of you know creating what is it? Five different classes of society from alpha That's to epsilon. Right. Uh, actually, designing people to be uh, docile and not very bright, so they'll take the most uh, menial jobs. Uh, there's a a tendency or a temptation here to to have the ultimate control over another human being's future life by people who have their own ideas of perfection. And since we all starting out are the imperfect ones, our ideas of perfection are likely to be pretty imperfect too. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Well, last fall at our annual fall conference, you came and spoke as part of a panel, and it was the most fascinating talk, I'll tell you, for those of us who were getting the uh, schedule together, we saw Richard's submission was entitled Warming the Frozen Heart, Self-Deception and Sacrifice in Disney's Frozen. Now, you know, the fall conference is interdisciplinary and brings some of the brightest minds from around the world to discuss a given topic. This year's topic was on um, good and evil. Your talk was perhaps the most accessible to any parent of a child under age 10. What was your talk about, and mm -hmm. uh, what was your thesis? Yeah, I've, I've always had an interest in movies, and, I've, and I did a sort of theological uh, commentary previously uh, on a website called The Catholic Thing about the Batman movie The Dark Knight and uh, about Batman uh, ultimately as a Christ figure there. Now, I have seen the movie Frozen only about 50 times because of my seven-year-old granddaughter. Uh -huh. uh, and one of the things that fascinated me, first of all, was that there are all these songs that are very popular in which uh, people supposedly fall in love at first sight and uh, a woman with special powers to create ice and snow uh, decides to let go all her previously suppressed uh, inhibitions and and lets it go and thinks that is the ultimate freedom, the ultimate empowerment. I've heard of it even as described as a kind of uh, metaphor for sexual liberation, 
the problem is that all these songs in which people are expressing and achieving their aspirations are said by the story of the movie to be wrong. Uh, the, the young Princess Anna, who is falling in love at first sight, is being horribly deceived by a man who wants to kill her and take over the kingdom. The Let It Go song is a song of someone who thinks she's been liberated, but in fact has become more prisoner of her powers and is destroying her whole kingdom unwittingly. And uh, even, of course, Olaf the snowman who sings about the wonders of summer doesn't quite realize that he would melt <laughs> into oblivion. So uh, so first, the first thing is self-deception, that there's a kind of psychological depth here about people's ability to deceive themselves and to pick the wrong paths uh, out, of, out of need, out of psychological uh, uh, desires that uh, seemed to me it was not, the us- not your usual Disney uh, cartoon. The second thing that interested me about it was that you, know, you have a whole series of movies now, some of them made by Disney, uh, that, that, uh, that ring variations on the whole theme of the true love's kiss. You know, the princess will be saved. She will be awakened from her slumber, her life saved, if, by romantic love, by yeah. the prince of the kiss. I mean, the kiss of the prince. <laughs> That's right. And... Uh, Sleeping Beauty, obviously. Sleeping Beauty is the uh, template for all of these. Uh, But in some of the Disney movies, uh, uh, Enchanted is another favorite of mine. Uh, It's not the prince whose kiss will save her, but the kiss of uh, Patrick Dempsey. I'm sure there are other women elsewhere who would think (laughs) that they would like to be awakened that way. Uh, But – and then you have uh, the movie uh, Maleficent in which it is not the prince's kiss that will awaken the princess. Uh, in fact, the, the, the prince tries, but he says, well, I, I think she's very attractive, but I hardly know her, you know, so it's not <laughs> yeah, true love. Yeah. But the true love comes from this woman who was once the enemy of her family and has become a kind of adoptive mother to her, and it's a mother's kiss. In Frozen, you have... Princess Anna thinks at first it's the prince's kiss that will save her, but he doesn't love her at all. And then the expectation is growing that uh, the kindly uh, ice salesman, uh, Kristoff, who is desperately trying to reach her, will save her by his kiss. But in the end, she only cares about saving the life of her sister. And she turns away from what she thinks is her last chance to survive, turns away from Kristoff to stop the evil prince of the Southern Isles from killing her sister and saying no to that. And, uh, of course, that ends up saving her as well because the act of true love that saves her and her kingdom and her sister was her act of true love. And Which is an act of sacrifice. It's an act of sacrifice. And it, yeah. and it struck me that the theme of this movie and its climactic moment is the theme of Pope John Paul II's great encyclical, the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, that the human being becomes fully alive through the sincere gift of self. It is by caring more for others. In fact, Olaf tells her, he's her, her mentor in love. Olaf mm-hmm. the snowman tells her, well, love means caring more about somebody else than yourself. And she never knew that. Uh, she thought it was all about infatuation and, and uh, romantic love. But uh, ultimate love is to sacrifice yourself for another. And in doing so, she has a kind of 
resurrection. I said, well, there's a Christian message here. Mm -hmm. uh, one other thing that I thought was very uh, telling in the movie, uh, the, the, there's a point in the movie where she's trying to get to her sister to get her to uh, reverse her spell on the kingdom, and Kristoff has agreed to take her in his sled. They are attacked by wolves. He has to leap across a chasm with his sled uh, drawn by his faithful uh, reindeer. Uh, and uh, at a, a tense moment, she call, and she sees the wolves. She says, Christopher. And he says, that's Christoph. I say, well, why is that there? Why is it so important that she get his name wrong? Well, Christopher is the legendary saint who carried the Christ child across mm -hmm. a river and found it increasingly heavy going. He almost doesn't make it but then in the end found out that what he was carrying was Christ himself. Mm -hmm. So uh, if that isn't a subliminal message that <laughs> she really is a Christ figure in the movie, I don't know what is. Wow. Uh, and there are other things. I mean, it is kind of a Catholic kingdom. There's a, there's a hymn being sung at the, uh, uh, at the uh, coronation of, uh, uh, of, Princess, uh, uh, of Queen Elsa uh, by a choir singing a Christian uh, hymn. There's... Uh, there's a picture of St. Joan of Arc on the wall. She's, as, as Anna goes by, she says, hang in there, Joan. <laughs> I think it's a Catholic kingdom. And yeah. I think this is one of the best Catholic movies in recent years. So I thought I would talk about yeah. that and about uh, how the, uh, you know, the line between good and evil is always shifting, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn told us in the Gulag Archipelago. But... Uh, in the end, it is we, we break through that line and we bring good to the world by uh, self-sacrificial love. Well, Richard M. Durflinger, uh, Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal Honoree and Public Policy Fellow of the Center for Ethics and Culture, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you to Richard Durflinger. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know, by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.